0: We will now hear argument in uh, Brown against uh, uh, Payton. Ms. Cortina.
1: Justice Stevens, and may it please the court: In this case, the Ninth Circuit violated EDPA by reversing the California Supreme Court's decision affirming Payton's 1982 death sentence. The California Supreme Court applied the exact right case, namely Boyd versus California, in the very manner contemplated that by that decision when assessing Peyton's claim that his jury misunderstood the Court's instructions, and in particular, Factor K, so as to unconstitutionally preclude consideration of his mitigating evidence. The California Supreme Court's application of Boyd is precisely the type of good-faith application of federal constitutional law to which Edpid demands deference. It is manifestly not objectively unreasonable. And this can be demonstrated uh, in three aspects of the decision— the first is that the California Supreme Court recognized Boyd's specific holding that factor K facially comported with the Eighth Amendment. The second. Is well, I thought
2: the holding was that factor K, standing alone, uh, does, does not raise uh, a uh, does, does not standing alone raise a question of reasonable uh, probability of of, uh, of, of 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 misunderstanding or misapplication of the law. And that's not what they're claiming here. They're claiming here that there was something much more than Kay standing alone. As I understand it, they're claiming that the difference between this and Boyd and why this is not a standalone kind of case is that the prosecutor uh, deliberately argued or argued law that was in fact wrong uh, and and continued to do so even after the Court interrupted the argument and that the Court never gave an instruction that corrected the erroneous statements of law that the prosecutor had made. So that's that's why they're they're saying this is not a Boyd situation.
1: Your Honor, Boyd has two specific components to its decision, which is first, what factor K means standing alone, and you need to resolve that issue, which California did in deciding the impact of the prosecutor's misstatements concerning factor K. So the First, you start from the premise, as the California Supreme Court did in following Boyd, that Factor K facially directed for consideration of Payton's mitigating evidence.
2: Well, no, no. The the mitigating evidence that Boyd held could be considered without a K being a bar was mitigating evidence about the, uh, the, the character of the individual prior to or at least up to the moment of the crime. Uh, so this is this is different kind of evidence, and I, I mean this is post-crime evidence, and, and I don't see that, that that Boyd's holding is so broad as obviously to cover this at all. It might be a it would be a, a closer question if it hadn't been for the prosecutor's argument uh, and the judge's failure to correct it. Uh, but uh, even even without those elements, there would be a serious question whether Boyd covered this at all.
1: Your Honor, respectfully, I disagree. I believe that the California Supreme Court correctly and and reasonably determined that Boyd's holding encompassed Payton's Payton's, uh, mitigating character evidence because the holding in Boyd or the issue directly presented by Boyd was whether factor K limited consideration to circumstances related to the crime or allowed for non-crime-related mitigating evidence in deciding the appropriate penalty. What do we
3: make of the Chief Justice's? clear statement not once, but twice in void. The prosecutor never suggested that background and character evidence could not be considered. So mustn't we take void with that qualification when we have a case where the prosecutor indeed suggested that this information could not be taken into consideration as a mitigating factor?
1: No, Justice Ginsburg. First, you must assess Factor K facially, and that's what Boyd did. Then the next question is, did the prosecutor's misstatements um, concerning Factor K mislead the jury to believe that they could no longer consider patents-mitigating character evidence. And that would be the second component of Boyd, which is a general test for assessing the reasonable likelihood a jury misunderstood the instructions in the context of the proceedings. And the particularly relevant and important inquiry in this case is the California Supreme Court's application of Boyd's reasonable likelihood test in the context of the proceedings. Well,
4: do do we take the case on the assumption that the trial court erred in not giving a curative instruction? and in saying, uh, well, uh, this is a matter for the attorneys to argue. You, you don't argue about what a statute means. That's a question of law. You don't argue that. You can argue the fact that it's mitigating or not mitigating or that it's extenuating or not extenuating, which is, I think, how you can interpret a lot of this. But it, it, it seems to me that the trial judge does make a mistake when he says, well, well, this is for, the, this is for them to argue when the, the point of the objection was that there was a uh, uh, misinterpretation of the instruction. That's a legal point.
1: And that is a fact that was expressly considered by the California Supreme Court in appropriately applying Boyd's general test for whether the jury misunderstood the uh, court's instructions and an instruction that facially called for consideration. Not that that the
3: jury misunderstood the judge's instruction, that there was no instruction. I mean, the, the picture that's given here is the defense attorney says, I can use this to mitigate the prosecutor says this is not legitimate mitigating evidence. And he said that several times. And the judge said, well, you can both argue it. And the judge never instructed the jury. He left it to the prosecutors to argue the law to the jury, and for the jury to make that legal determination. It, it seems to me that 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 is truly an error. Now, you can still say, well, even so, it was harmless. but. But I don't think, can there be any doubt when the judge tells the attorney, you argued the law to the jury and let the jury decide what the law is?
1: Yes, there, there can there, there is a reasonable likelihood that the jury did not take the prosecutor's statements so as to preclude consideration of patents mitigating evidence because the prosecutor's well, statements even, cannot, even if,
2: even if that argument is, is, is on point, just taking your, your response on its own terms, where do you get a reasonable likelihood?
1: Because the prosecutor's statements cannot be construed in a vacuum. What we, you have to look, as Boyd required and as California did, at the context of the entire proceedings. What we're here, what the jury was doing in Payton was deciding whether Payton should live or die. The sentencing determination. No, but let's
2: get specific. You, you said there isn't a reasonable possibility. Why? Is, get, get down to facts. Why isn't there a reasonable possibility?
1: Why there is not a reasonable likelihood the jury misunderstood? No, a
2: prosecutor stands there and twice says, before the judge interrupts him, after the judge interrupts him, says, you cannot legally consider this evidence. It does not fall within K." Uh, and the judge never corrects it. Why is there not a, a, a reasonable likelihood of, of, of jury uh, mistake?
1: One, Your Honor, the judge admonished the jury that the prosecutor's statements were that of an advocate, and that- No, well,
2: it's precisely if I recall, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought what the judge said was- that the prosecutor's statements uh, were, were not evidence. Of course they're not evidence. The issue isn't whether they were evidence. They were statements of the law. The judge didn't say anything about whether they were correct or incorrect statements of the law. It seems to me that the judge's response to the objection was totally beside the point.
1: The ju- nevertheless, the judge's response relegated the prosecutor's statements as to his personal opinion, as to that of a, so, as, as, of, to argument, which is a statement of an advocate. And the jury, from the time it was impaneled, guilt phase and through the penalty phase and at the concluding instructions, was repeatedly instruct, instructed that they would be getting the instruction uh, of, on the law from the court. And the and court either, didn't
2: give them an instruction on this contested point.
1: I respect He disagree. didn't come out
2: and say, yes, you can consider this under K." He never said that.
1: No, but K says you can consider it under K. K
2: says uh you can consider evidence that, that goes to the gravity of the crime. I will be candid to say I think you're stretching things about as far as you can stretch, as Boyd held, that that uh character evidence pre and up to the time of the crime can be considered reasonably under that factor. But certainly, evidence of what an individual did after the crime is committed does not naturally follow within K at all, and I don't know why any juror would consider it unless a judge came out and said flatly, you can.
1: Your Honor, the California Supreme Court reasonably applied Boyd's holding that Factor K did call for consideration of character evidence, and that's precisely what Peyton presented. Well,
5: what if there- we conclude that there was an error here? Um, is there a harmless error
1: argument that you fall back on? Yes, Your Honor, there is a harmless error. But before we even get to harmless error, the fact that you disagree with the ultimate conclusion of the California Supreme Court under EDPA is not sufficient. The California ask, Supreme Court's decision
0: — May I ask you a question that goes hard at the beginning? What is your position on whether or not the prosecutor correctly stated the law?
1: The State concedes, and as the California Supreme Court recognized, the prosecutor misstated the law. But the jury would not —
0: you also concede he did so deliberately? Do you concede there was prosecutorial misconduct is what I'm really asking?
1: Absolutely not, Your Honor. The prosecutor did not com- commit misconduct. The prosecutor made a mistake. And the misconduct analysis, which is similar to what Boyd contemplated when they set forth the general standard for assessing whether a jury would misunderstood, mis- misunderstand an instruction, uh, is, this, is almost the same when — when you're analyzing um, whether the question is prosecutorial misconduct, Boyd sets forth the test for how to assess a misstatement by the prosecutor. And Boyd said that, at uh, the first instance, a statement of the prosecutor is not to be considered as having the same force as instructions from the court. And that principle was recognized by the California Supreme Court and reinforced — that,
0: that statement went to whether the jury was act, apt to accept it, not to the question whether the prosecutor acted improperly.
1: I'm sorry, Your Honor. The prosec- in this case, the prosecutor made a mistake. I don't think that there's any evidence, uh, to support the conclusion that the prosecutor committed misconduct in this case. Particularly- well,
4: I, I- I can see that a prosecutor, a prosecutor- could say, you know, this is in factor K evidence as a way of saying, uh, that this evidence is of little weight. Uh, he did say, uh, at- at, at one- at one time, you have not heard any legal evidence of mitigation and and that that's the troublesome part
1: your honor the the state concedes that the, the prosecutor did make misstatements but I think that the bulk as you pointed out the bulk of the prosecutor's argument went to the weight to be attributed to Peyton's mitigating evidence and actually most of the argument um, by the prosecutor indicating that Peyton's evidence didn't mitigate uh, the uh, at the seriousness of his rape and murder is, there are, were similar arguments that were made by the prosecutor and Boyd in which Boyd found were not objectionable. But again, the important scrutiny is that the California Supreme Court evaluated the prosecutor's statements within the correct analytical framework matrix established by Boyd. They considered all the correct principles, the, the effective of argument of counsel. They considered the instructions and like Boyd, They found that Factor K facially directed the consideration.
3: Suppose I were to take the view that it is a violation of clearly established law for a court to allow a prosecutor repeatedly to misstate the law, misinform the jury about what the law is on a life or death question without correcting that misstatement, without saying the jury. Jury, it's not for the prosecutor to argue what the law is. I tell you what the law. If the judge doesn't do that, then that meets any standard of violating clearly established law about which there should be no doubt that when the prosecutor makes a misstatement on a life-or-death question, it is the judge's obligation to say, jury, he is wrong, You take your instruction from me and here's my instruction. Suppose that's my view of this case. And I said, I don't void all these other cases. It just strikes me that that's clearly wrong. What do I do with that?
1: Well, you can find that the court was wrong and not like what you did, what the court did. But the inquiry is whether the jury misunderstood the instructions as a result of the court's conduct. And that requires an analysis of the context of the proceedings. And that is precisely what the California Supreme Court did.
3: They now you're getting to the question I think that just, Justice O'Connor raised a few minutes ago about are you urging, yes, this is error, but it was harmless?
1: No, I am not agreeing that this was error at all. I agree that the prosecutor made a misstatement and that the California Supreme Court thoroughly and properly evaluated that statement. Well, but just the, on that
4: point, if the prosecutor makes him a misstatement, doesn't the trial judge have an obligation to correct it if it's significant?
1: The, in this or, am case, I but, wrong,
4: or am I wrong about that? The judge just kind of watches the ship sail over the waterfall?
1: The prosecutor — I mean, the, the trial court did correct it. It may not be the sufficient correction in this court's eye, but the court did — give an admonition that relegated the prosecutor's statements to that of the advocate and not to the instructions of the court? What if the prosecutor
5: had uh, said several times to the jury during the course of his arguments that the burden of proof by the state is by a preponderance, not beyond a reasonable doubt? And the judge just says, um, prosecutor's arguments are just that. They're not the law. I'll instruct you, but he never says anything. Is that
1: okay? It's not what we'd optimally want the court to do, but that's not the inquiry pre- that's presented and answered by Boyd. The question is, as a result of what happened, trials are not error-free. We wish that they were, but they're not. The question is, how do you respond to when a, tra- when a prosecutor makes a misstatement of law? And Boyd addresses that question.
5: Boyd well, has- normally we would think the trial judge would correct a misstatement. Of the law by counsel, we would normally think that, wouldn't we? Yes. And it wasn't clearly done here. I mean, they, the jury was reminded that arguments of counsel are just that, but there was no attempt to correct what appeared to be a misstatement.
1: The court's admonition was sufficient, but
3: we're, we we have to respond to the case what, what before you. What admonition was sufficient? The the court said something about evidence. And everybody — I mean, there's no question what the prosecutor said isn't evidence. But he didn't tell them. He has misstated the law. They're not talking about — evidence is not at issue at all. Neither side suggests that it is. It's a question is, what is the law that governs this controversy? What is the law that the jury must apply to make a life or death decision? Right, And, what was and, quick, and you, you said the judge corrected it, and I read this uh, joint appendix. I could not find any correction.
1: The Court's admonition that the prosecutor's argument was not evidence but argument of counsel relegated the statements of the prosecutor to that of an advocate and did not take the prosecutor's arguments and elevate it in place then, of the then instructions then it, then given. Then,
3: then it has another problem with it, because then the judge is saying, that's an argument. you. Jury, you've heard arguments on both sides. You decide. But it isn't for the jury to decide what the law is. But
1: the analysis is whether there was a reasonable likelihood the jury misunderstood the Court's instructions so as to preclude consideration of patents mitigating evidence. Did and the that judge yes-
4: instruct the jury that um — you are to consider all of the evidence which has been received during any part of the trial?
1: Yes, Your Honor. And actually, that's one of the inquiries that Boyd required is that you look at the instruction itself, the other instructions, and that's an inquiry the California Supreme Court did in fact conduct. And that is, the jury was presented with, with an uh, instruction that said, you shall consider all the evidence unless um, otherwise instructed and nothing out of any of the factors A through uh, K limited the jury's consideration of Patent's mitigating evidence or precluded, pardon me. Are
4: are you taking the position that um, as a matter of California procedure, the jury was entitled to consider matters that matter that was not within A through K?
1: I think that the instructions encompass the jury considering something not specifically in A through K for purposes of mitigating evidence because the instructions say you shall consider the evidence presented. And that was pre-Peyton Have Payton's the California
4: evidence. courts said that? That. Have the California courts said that A through K are is not intended to be exhaustive pre, pre-Payton? Uh, pardon me. Yeah, have they said that pre I don't
1: think that that issue has been. Uh, presented and decided by the California Supreme Court specifically. I I
4: thought the case was being argued to us, correct me if I'm wrong, on on, on the theory that this was Factor K evidence.
1: It is our position that it it does fall within Factor K evidence, but in deciding whether the that whether Peyton's jury was unconstitutionally precluded from considering the evidence, you look to the, all the instructions, and when you consider the direction to consider all that you shall consider all the evidence, and then the concluding the, this, Martina,
0: instruction the, the red brief, maybe it's not accurate, they say the instruction was uh, all the evidence received during any part of the trial in this case, except as you may hereafter be instructed, and then that followed with the, the Factor K discussion came after that. So would it not have been possible that, that the juror would have thought, except for the following things? Or is there something more that I missed?
1: No, the written instruction followed the arguments of counsels. And, what, and so, no, there was no instruction so after that. So if they that.
0: misunderstood the factor K instruction, they would have thought they could not consider all the evidence.
1: There was no reasonable likelihood that they uh, felt that they could not consider Payton's evidence under factor K. And the California Supreme Court would have — Well, if they believed
0: the prosecutor, they would have thought they couldn't.
1: But, there, but as, a, as analyzed by the California Supreme Court, it is not reasonably likely that the jury would have accepted the prosecutor's first few misstatements. And as I was saying, to do so, the jury would have had to.
0: All I'm, all I'm directing my inquiry to is to the significance of the instruction to consider all the evidence. I think it's to consider all the evidence except that which may not be admissible as I now t- — or may not be relevant as I shall hereafter instruct you.
1: However, nothing in the following instructions says you shall not consider uh, oh, Peyton's the mitigating the prosecutor evidence. said
0: that if you interpret the last instruction properly, you shall not do so.
1: He said that it didn't fall within factor K. However, the, the jury would not — there is no reasonable likelihood, and the California Supreme Court was not objectively unreasonable, including — in concluding that the, jur- that the jury would have accepted the prosecutor's first few misstatements and — chosen to disregard Payton's mitigating evidence because the jury just sat through eight witnesses testifying to Payton's uh post-crime remorse and rehabilitation. They sat through that without any misstatements by the prosecutor. So they recognized that they had heard this evidence and that it was relevant and that it was subject to consideration. Then they heard the arguments of counsel concerning the weight to be attributed to Payton's mitigating evidence. And although the prosecutor did make the misstatements, his statements were relegated to that of an advocate. And to conclude that the jury would disregard the repeated instructions to follow the instruct the to take the law from the court and their inevitable long held societal beliefs that remorse and rehabilitation are relevant to making an appropriate moral reasoned response to response uh, in deciding the life or death sentence. Is not a reasonable conclusion. And we know that the fact, in fact, that the jury did consider Peyton's mitigating evidence by virtue of the questions that the, the jury asked the court um, during deliberations. The jury asked whether Payton uh, would be eligible for parole and whether any change in the law could retroactively uh, make him eligible for parole. You only get to a consideration of whether what the effect is of saving Payton's life under the California sentencing scheme that was existed at that time, if you believe that there is mitigation evidence to consider, because California, at the time of patent sentencing, s- instructed the jury that if the aggravating circumstances outweigh the mitigating circumstances, you shall impose death. Deblu- d- yep. they,
2: they, they might not have thought that the aggravating circumstances were entitled... Uh, to, to great weight. I mean, we don't know how they evaluated the aggravating circumstances.
1: That might be one reasonable conclusion, but the other but, I mean, that, that is a
2: possible conclusion, and therefore it doesn't follow from the fact that they raised the question about life without parole that they necessarily had found or uh, that they were necessarily considering the mitigating evidence.
1: It's a reasonable inference to be made from the questions asked, and that's po- what you're it, looking it, at. It's
2: one possibility, isn't that all?
1: <clears throat> it's one reasonable inference, and that's what the important que- inquiry is, that the, trial- the California Supreme Court reasonably considered the relevant pertinent facts and all the applicable law in reaching a decision that Peyton's jury was not unconstitutionally precluded from considering uh, his mitigating character evidence. And I think that that the California Supreme Court's decision demonstrates that it applied Boyd to the letter faithfully and methodically and that it it considered all the relevant facts and that its decision under these circumstances is manifestly not objectively unreasonable. And that is the requirement and that is the inquiry that we're here today to resolve. The, The Ninth Circuit failed to give the appropriate deference to the California Supreme Court's decision, in deciding that the penalty should be patent's penalty should be reversed. The Ninth Circuit instead conflated objectively unreasonable with a determination that it personally felt that there was constitutional error and doesn't respect the distinction recognized in EDPA between a incorrect decision or a correct decision, incorrect decision, unreasonable decision, and the higher threshold of objectively unreasonable. And unless this court has any further questions, uh, Justice Stevens, I would like to reserve the remainder of my time.
6: How long did the penalty phase take?
1: The penalty phase took about a day with eight witnesses.
0: Thank you. Mr. Gitts.
7: Thank you, Justice Stevens. May it please the court. I'd like to start off, if I may, by addressing some of the points that were brought up just earlier. Uh, And I'd like to indicate to this Court that the California Supreme Court has held uh, that factors A through K are the exclusive considerations that the jury must encompass in deciding whether or not to impose death or life.
4: Has factor K been supplemented with the CalJIC instructions since Peyton? It has.
7: In 1983, two years after Peyton's trial, it was supplemented to include all of the uh, mitigating evidence that this Court has uh, indicated the jury is entitled to consider. But
4: what is important Excuse me. Do they still call it Factor K, or do they just have a supplemental instruction that follows Factor K?
7: It's uh, been a couple of years since I've done a death penalty trial, but I think it's still called Factor K. It's just uh, supplemented and changed uh, that way. the second thing is that this court has indicated some concern over the uh, jury question that was raised first in, uh, in the state's reply argument, and I need to put the court, I think, in, in proper context as to what occurred in the, in that jury question. The case was given to the jury at 11:55 on the date of, of the uh, determination, and the jury was told to select a foreman. Five minutes, they went into the uh, deliberations room. Five minutes later, they came out and went to lunch. They didn't commence their deliberations thereafter until 1 o'clock. At 1.10, they came out with a, the question that is now before the court. And I want to suggest to this court that it is not reasonable to believe that during that 10-minute span of time, the jury considered uh, the, whether or not factor K applied. And what was the question? The question, there was really two questions. One, and I'm paraphrasing, is there any possibility Mr. Payton could be released on parole if we give him life? And the second one is, if the law is amended, could that be construed to be retroactively applicable to Mr. Payton? Those were the two questions. Those
6: don't sound as if they thought his conversion to Christianity made a difference.
7: Uh, I think, Your Honor, what the jury articulated is what this Court has seen on many occasions, the jury's concern about does life without Possibility mean life without. Yeah, yeah. They never went beyond that at this point in time. So what I'm suggesting to this court is that the short span that they had to write that question, which I agree, given enough time, might permit an inference that they did consider factor K, isn't applicable in this Well, an
4: equal inference is they just felt that it was entitled to no weight at all, given the horrific nature of this, of this crime.
7: Yes, I agree. And my position isn't that, that the short span, you know, assists our position. Our position is that this won't assist this Court in arriving at a decision about uh, whether the jury considered it.
4: And you have to show there's a reasonable likelihood that the jury might have come to an opposite conclusion.
7: Yes. And Boyd teaches that the way to do that is to look at the context of the entire case in conjunction with the, the instruction that was given in this case. And I want to start out that I, I agree with the uh, State that the first thing this Court should do is look at the instruction standing alone. And I want to indicate that without reference to the context of the case, the instruction standing alone does not support the inference that Peyton's post-crime evidence could be considered. Now, I agree that in the context of the case, the context of the case could change that consideration, for instance, if the court, as this, some member of this court already indicated, told the jury that Factor K uh, is to encompass Peyton's evidence, or even if the prosecutor may have said to the jury during his argument, ladies and gentlemen, although it might not seem like Peyton's evidence could be considered by you under Factor K, in fact, it can. Then we would be left with a situation very similar to Boyd, where there really is no argument among counsel as to whether or not the evidence could be subsumed under K, and that, in the context of that case, would permit it.
4: Well, on on that point, and I, I recognize it's it's, it's not nearly as clean as the hypothetical you present. He, he did say, as uh, the prosecutor, of the law and its simplicity is that if the aggregating factors outweigh the mitigating factors, the sentence should be death. And so let's just line these up, and then he talks about the, the conversion. So uh, there were other parts of his argument. Uh, that indicated by one interpretation that this is not mitigating under special K, under, under factor K. Uh, but here he does say that you line it up and you weigh one again.
7: I, I would respond to that by saying two things. He does say that, but after he says, ladies and gentlemen, I want to address uh, some of uh, uh, Peyton's evidence, I'm not suggesting, and, I'm, and I don't believe that it applies under factor K. But then he went on to discuss that evidence, and I agree he did. Uh, I certainly can't say he didn't. But, but the real issue here is what effect likely did that have on the jury? And I, I'm indicating that that given the preliminary, his preliminary part about it still doesn't apply, but I will address it, that is unlikely to give the jury any confidence that that evidence could be considered. Uh, so it's not at all a concession uh, that occurred in this case. Well,
3: What's why it? wouldn't the jury conclude? Why isn't it the most logical conclusion that, gee, the judge had us sit here through eight witnesses and listen to all that, and he didn't exclude any part of it? So of course we must consider it, because otherwise we wouldn't have been exposed to all of it.
7: That was a relevant consideration in Boyd, and I think a powerful consideration in Boyd and in California versus Brown because of the context of this case, it's not relevant here. Once the judge uh, permits both counsel, one counsel to argue one way and the other counsel to argue the other way, the jury is now being relegated as the, the finder of the law in order to evaluate whether or not they could consider that evidence. They had to look at the evidence that was presented.
4: Well, they, they they always have to say whether or not we're going to really weigh this or is it just too tangential. And that's one way of saying, well, this really isn't mitigating. Now, we know as lawyers that it is mitigating in the sense uh, that, it's, that it's relevant and that, that, that it's there for the jury to give it the weight that it chooses. But jurors say, well, you know, this is — this, this just is not important, is what they're saying.
7: But when the prosecutor says this doesn't fall under K and the defense attorney says it does fall under K, all I'm indicating is that the argument that this would be viewed as a charade no longer has any effect. It is now a preliminary thing that the court m- Well, it's be a shorthand sure for saying
4: at. it doesn't fall under K because it just is of so little weight. That's, I think, how the jury might have interpreted
7: it. Yes, Your Honour. They might, but the issue here is whether or not there's a reasonable likelihood that the jury uh, did not consider that, and uh, and that's the. Actually, only. That
6: isn't really the issue. I think I find that easy. Uh, the harder issue is is whether uh, the uh, um, a person who thought about it differently than me, a judge, would have uh, uh, be objectively unreasonable. At least for me, that's the hard question. The, the question you're arguing is not
7: hard. Yes, I, I don't think I understand, Your Honor. I mean,
6: I would perhaps have come to a different conclusion in the California Supreme Court on that question. But we can overturn them only if they're objectively unreasonable. And that's, that's the hard thing because, for me.
7: Yes. Uh, I, I, there is very re- relatively little guidance uh, that we have so far on the AEDPA, Uh, I think the the cases that uh, do have some relevance are both Wiggins v. Smith and uh, Taylor um, v. Williams. Wiggins v. Smith dealt with uh, the failure of the uh, state court to actually evaluate evidence that occurred in this case. The California Supreme Court opinion on the issue of whether or not the, uh, the court properly conducted itself has one sentence and the sentence says, and I'm paraphrasing something to the effect of, the fact that the court refused to adorn factor K is not in itself a, uh, an error. Well, we all, I think, would, would concur that that's true, but that doesn't address what happened here. It's a complete failure to address an all-encompassing uh, event that happened. Uh, something close, and I have to be careful here, something close to structural error, where the judge gives over the obligation to decide what the law is to the jury. This California Supreme Court not once ever considered that. And there is no reference to them doing anything other than making that. No, but I something. mean,
6: that, that's really wrong what the judge did. Say. But, but the that, that's tangential to the question. The question is, is it reasonably likely, if that hadn't occurred, that the jury would have considered the evidence that he was converted. But since it did occur, you know, they they, they didn't consider it. Is it reasonably likely they never considered it? that's, That's the question. And then I can imagine for what reason that Justice Ginsburg said, sitting in the California Supreme Court and saying, well, they heard the evidence for two days or a day, six witnesses, eight witnesses, they're not technicians, the jury. And and of course they considered it. I can imagine that. And that's what I'm having, even though I don't agree with
7: yes. it. Yes. Considered, or I agree, they certainly considered the evidence, but they also, if they were falling their obligation under the law, they considered whether or not they were entitled to give that any weight under factor K. That was the primary function that was given to them. So certainly they discussed the evidence. But then did they arrive, did they go in that room and arrive at a decision that maybe we can't, by law, consider this evidence? And I think that's the focal point here, and that's the thing this Court doesn't know what happened in that jury room. Except
5: if they heard so much of the evidence, isn't it unlikely that — the jury thought they couldn't consider what they heard?
7: The more evidence they hear, the more likely it is, I think, that human beings are going to consider the evidence. Uh, The evidence, the the penalty evidence took place over a two-day period of time, but I want to indicate that it took place over two half-day periods of time and that uh, if you put the time together, I think it comes to around 70 pages which should be substantially less than a half day altogether. Now, it encompassed eight witnesses, and there was a lot of evidence brought out about post-crime conduct. Uh, But it it wasn't a massive amount such as there was in Boyd, 400 pages and weeks of testimony. Uh, So I think that that's an important consideration, too. The the court 's concern about whether or not the jury would likely consider that it seems to me starts with the, an examination of, of factor k itself and, and I want to indicate that mr Payton really didn 't start out at the same mark as, uh, as the state did in its case. The language of factor k just doesn 't on its face appear to permit consideration of that evidence and And so, therefore, something had to have happened in the trial, we assert, to change that, to make the ambiguous, at least as applied to Peyton, evidence of Factor K applicable so that the jury would reasonably likely consider it. The events that could have happened during the context of that trial didn't happen. Uh, In fact, everything happened against the defendant. He starts off with an instruction that's against him, that supports, under any natural reading, the prosecutor's language. And then he's buttressed with a prosecutor that, given the plain and natural meaning of the language, is going to have a far more compelling position with the jury about whether or not it could be considered. And the, and the defense attorney's position is really nothing more than an assertion, when he looks at the language itself, an assertion that it was awkwardly worded. Now, now the defense attorney made reference to, if this was the kind of evidence, if I was a juror and I was considering this, I would think this would be important evidence. And the answer to that is, of course, it is important evidence, but that's not the question. The question is whether or not it could be considered under K. He gives — he, the defense attorney, gives his position that — that K was meant to be a catch-all factor, and it was meant to consume and take in to effect Payton's evidence. But he had nothing to support that. He had no legal position to support it. He was faced with the plain language of the statute that didn't permit him to do that.
6: Doesn't it? I mean, it, it says that what's, — what's the exact language of that statute? I just have it here. It's, um, it's, it's gravity. Uh, it's it, the it,
7: — it is any other circumstance which extenuates the gravity of the, the crime. crime. You could say,
6: yeah, his, his, his later conversion extenuated the gravity of the crime. Not, not the, not the, when I try to think of this person who is not me, uh, 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 thinking of that, I say, well, plausible, plausible, not perhaps the best, but plausible.
7: Well, mm-hmm. as we pointed out in our brief, this court in, in uh Skipper, um, some justices in, in that decision indicated that, uh, or, in fact, the majority indicated, that the post-crime evidence of rehabilitation in prison is, in fact, uh, not anything that relates to culpability. Factor K, however way you look at it, and I agree that it's sufficiently ambiguous to where, given the right context, the right events happening at trial, a jury would reasonably likely look at it as covering that. But... Not under this case, because there wasn't anything that happened in Payton's trial which permitted a reasonable inference that, in fact, that evidence should be uh, considered. And as to uh, harmless error, uh, i as we pointed out in our brief, it, under the California statute, which in effect requires that if the aggravating evidence outweighs the mitigating evidence, the jury shall return a verdict of death. If there's no reasonable likelihood that the jury considered Factor K, then, in effect, Bill Payton was left without any mitigating evidence to be considered by the jury at all. And that means that the jury had to come back with a verdict of death. Now, that brings this court, once the court, if the court becomes satisfied as to constitutional error, uh, that brings the court, I think, very closely to, to this case, this court's case in Penry, Versus Johnson, because there, the jury will not have had a vehicle in order to give effect to Patent's mitigating evidence. In Penry versus Johnson, in fact, in discussing at least the Eighth Amendment issue, this court never really even discussed harmless error. It was reversed uh, without any discussion. Now, I don't want to suggest the court didn't engage in a harmless error. Um, I, I,
4: I, I see where you're going, and I, I, I see that there's some parallel. The problem in Penry was that the, the, jury, the jurors had to actually violate their instructions. And uh, you have to escalate your argument a bit before you get to that
7: point. Yes, I, I agree it's not exactly identical, but we're very close to, to that point in Penry. And beyond that, uh, the prosecutor did argue um, vociferously that the jury should, in its determination, should uh, be concerned about whether or not Bill Payton is going to uh, stab the prison guards in the back. In effect, argued dangerousness, which was uh, appropriate. Uh, But if the jury, he also argued that the jury couldn't consider evidence which plainly pointed to his lack of dangerousness, his good adjustment in prison his conversion to christianity. Uh, so in effect the prosecutor was able to argue um, its side and and the jury wasn't able when you get to the harmless error analysis to argue its side. And that's what makes uh, this uh, it seems to me a very strong showing that uh, that harmless error um uh that the error in this case is not harmless. It had a clearly important effect.
6: Is it relevant at all? This happened 24 years ago. We're sitting here trying to think of what a jury would have been thinking in a state of the law that's a quarter of a century old, and facts, I don't know what to think. I guess that's just irrelevant.
7: Well, it's certainly relevant to Bill Payton, um, and and I don't demean the, the position of the Court, it's not relevant in terms of its impact as to future cases. Uh, there are some cases left uh, that are still dealing out there, dealing with Factor K. Uh, to the best of our knowledge, uh, we've, we've done a search and we believe there is about 70 cases dealing with the old, unadorned Factor K. But of those 70 cases, um, none of them — from, and we haven't reviewed all of them — but of the ones we've reviewed, None of them deal both with Peyton's pure post-crime evidence, uh, coupled with the prosecutor's unrelenting position to the government that they cannot, uh, uh, consider that. So case. all
6: this was at a time before Penry was decided?
7: Uh, it is the time before Penry versus Johnson was decided. It is not the time before Penry versus Linow was decided. And when I say- Which is the Texas, the Texas, you know, the ones- both are the Texas case. Both deal with Mr. Penry.
6: One and two. Yes. And two.
7: Yes. And when I say it was not before that, I'm talking about on the date of the California Supreme Court's decision. At the time of the jury uh, determination, this court only had, or that court, only had Lockett to make a determination as to whether the evidence could be uh, could be considered. And the Court made the decision that he thought that it could be considered, but then refused to make any adjustments once it became clear that both counsel were going to argue their respective positions on the law. The, the Court uh, earlier talked about other instructions as impacting upon the uh, the context of the case. And uh, those were important considerations in Boyd. Uh, Especially the observation that the jury was to consider uh, any other evidence presented at either time of the trial. But in the context of this case, Your Honor, it means nothing. As I've indicated, the jury was required to ignore any evidence it heard at either phase of the trial unless it fit within factors A through K. If it didn't fit within there, even though they heard that evidence, they were instructed to ignore it. Beyond that, they were also instructed that the that they were to consider the arguments of counsel. Now, being that there was no clear instruction to the jury that they had to consider uh, factor K as being relevant evidence, the jury then likely put greater weight on counsel's argument. And that's why it becomes important. So the other instructions, when you put them all together, rather than putting in proper context what did occur in this case, in effect make it even harder for Bill Payton's position that the jury should consider Factor K uh, to be relevant.
3: The The prosecutor, at the very end of his closing to the jury, did seem, even if grudgingly, but that, to recognize that, that this evidence was mitigating. I'm looking at page 76 of the joint appendix. The top of the page, he makes different statements, the law is simple, it says, aggravating factors outweigh mitigating. And then how do those factors line up? Well, the facts of the case, going into violence, etc., that's on the aggravating side. And then, against that, defendant really has nothing except newborn Christianity and the fact that he's 28 years old. So that, in that final word to the jury, the prosecutor seems to be saying, yeah, they have mitigating factors, but they're insubstantial, 28 years old, and a claim that he's a newborn Christian.
7: It'll be up to this court to make a determination as to where the prosecutor go- was going and whether or not this uh, constitutes a concession that, that the uh, jury could consider the evidence. I, our position is that, viewed as a whole, he did not go to that. Certainly, he permitted the jury, and he did address the issue uh, of if the jury does consider that. He premised it by saying, I don't think this is relevant, but if, if and I'm paraphrasing here, but if you think it's relevant, it's still not entitled to wait. If the issue before this court is whether or not there's a reasonable likelihood that the jury uh, considered that evidence, then given the context of that statement, uh, I don't think the jury can hardly be satisfied that the prosecutor, in fact, gave in and agreed that Peyton's evidence — Do we have is. a
6: transcript of that hearing here?
7: Of uh, what hearing, Your Honour?
6: Well, the penalty phase. I mean, one yes. way if I'm having trouble, I just read it.
7: It is in the uh, in the joint appendix. The in entire thing. Uh, Yes, the entire penalty evidence and uh, all argument uh, and the instructions is in there. Um, and that's uh, unless the court has any additional questions. I have nothing further.
0: Thank you, you, Mr. Gitts. Ms. Cortina, you have a little over five minutes left.
1: Justice Stevens, the real inquiry is whether the California Supreme Court's decision was objectively unreasonable. It is not whether there was a reasonable likelihood. And Peyton, like the Ninth Circuit, Peyton's counsel —
4: Could you help me on that? I thought it was two steps. I thought the question is whether there's a reasonable likelihood that the jury was misled — And then you have to ask whether it was unreasonable for the State Supreme Court to conclude that there was that reasonable likelihood. Correct me if I'm wrong.
1: That is one way of approaching the case. But uh, I think under EDPA, what you'd look at, which would be the more appropriate way, is how the California Supreme Court analyzed the claim and not first conducted a de novo review about whether there was a reasonable likelihood. I don't think that in the end that there's much difference. But you
4: can't. Overturn it on habeas unless there's a reasonable likelihood.
1: Right, that would be a, right. You would have to find that the, you would have to find an error and one that was objectively, and then the California Supreme Court objectively unreasonable in not finding the error. This is true. So obviously, the reasonable likelihood test is a is a relevant inquiry, but it is not the inquiry. And I think that that, that that's what Peyton's argument demonstrates, and the Ninth Circuit's analysis demonstrates, is that they are effectively equating a decision that the uh, California Supreme Court's conclusion was incorrect with in their personal and their subjective opinion with a con- with the standard that the decision must be objectively unreasonable. And in this case, the California Supreme Court's decision was manifesting not objectively unreasonable. Um we know, we, d- we know that objectively unreasonable doesn't have a clear definition. We do have an example of what is objectively unreasonable, and that was cited in Payton's brief, and that is a failure to consider particular facts or relevant law. And we know that that didn't occur in this case. The very argument and facts that Peyton insists were not considered by the California Supreme Court in applying Boyd if not in the majority opinion, are found within Justice Kennard's dissent. So we have no question that the California Supreme Court identified the correct case and the correct principles within the case and considered all the necessary facts. And that should make this decision uh, um, subject to deference under EDPA. Uh, this court uh, last term provided additional guidance on how to assess the range of reasonable judgment through the lens of EDPA in Yarborough versus Alvarado. And one of the things that the, the Ninth Circuit and Payton's analysis keeps um, overlooking is the uh, Boyd-specific holding concerning factor K. And when you analyze the, speci- uh, the range of reasonable judgment of the California Supreme Court concerning factor K. Uh, the specific rule of factor K, the reason, the range of reasonable judgment was less. The California Supreme Court had little to no leeway to conclude otherwise. Boyd's holding is broad. Boyd hol- held that factor K was a broad catch-all mitigation instruction that allowed for any other circumstance that counseled a sentence less than death and specifically found that background and character, uh, fell within the ambit of factor K. And no decision of this Court or the California Supreme Court in analyzing character has ever drawn a distinction between post-crime and pre-crime character evidence. The
6: footnote in Boyd that seems to draw that distinction.
1: The footnote in Boyd actually uh, supports more California's position that factor K encompasses any other circumstance uh, that would counsel sentence less than death as opposed to uh, the Ninth Circuit and Peyton's interpretation that factor K is limited to the crime. In both the first part of footnote 5, the, the, the um, Chief Justice Rehnquist um rejects defa- uh, the defense argument that the gravity of the crime focused the consideration to the circumstances of the crime. Rather, it allowed the jury to assess the seriousness of what the defendant has done in light of what's the appropriate punishment. And that involves a consideration of the defendant's uh, background and character. And then the uh, last part of footnote five expressly recognizes that factor K allows for consideration of good character evidence, and good character evidence is only relevant to a decision about whether the person should live or die, not to the circumstances related to the crime. And good character evidence under Peyton and the Ninth Circus interpretation of Factor K would not and could not, whether it existed pre- or post-crime, fall under the meaning of Factor K. So the footnote five actually bolsters the ultimate broad interpretation that the California Supreme Court uh, adopted when it applied Boyd Void Specific Holding Concerning Factor K to the analysis of Payton's uh, claim. And although they did, in footnote five, distinguish the fact that uh, it did not involve post-crime evidence and mitigation, it didn't decide the question. It was simply noting a fact that distinguished the case from Skipper. And and Per requires that we follow the holdings of the court and not dicta. So when we make, start.
0: Go ahead and make one more sentence. Yeah.
1: Uh, The California Supreme Court's decision was a reasonable application of Boyd, and the Ninth Circuit's reversal of it is — and this Court should uh, (laughs) — I
0: think we understand you. Exactly. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. The case is submitted.
1: The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.